Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed the Union King Christian's attempts to regain control over Sweden and to reclaim the Swedish crown. Even though the Swedish nobles weren't categorically against re-establishing the Kalmar Union and accepting Christian as King of Sweden again, they kept squibbling about the details. The Swedish nobles wanted Christian to agree to handing over a lot of his royal powers to the Swedish Council of the Realm if he wanted to be their king again. Christian, on his part, refused because he thought the Swedes would eventually cave and come crawling to him, begging him to accept the Swedish crown since there was no other candidate and no country can go without a king for too long. But then the Swedes went and asked Karl Knutsson to return as king of Sweden for a third time. This was too much for Christian, and yet another period of fighting followed, which only ended when Karl Knutsson died, unrelated to the fighting. But even now, the Swedes weren't willing to take Christian back without him severely curtailing his powers, and since Christian insisted that he wouldn't, the Swedes found another steward of the realm, Sten Sture, a relative of Karl Knutsson's. At this point, Christian had had enough. He travelled to Sweden to force them to recognise him as king. That plan soon went sideways, and after he lost a decisive battle at Brunkeberg, just north of Stockholm, in October 1471, Christian returned to Denmark and finally agreed to the Swedish demands of a diminished role for the monarch in Sweden, working together with a strong council. But then, to everyone's shock, representatives of the Swedish peasants and burghers rejected the deal, quite possibly due to the steward Stensturis machinations. It's quite likely that the only thing that staved off yet another round of fighting between Denmark and Sweden at this point was that Christian died in May 1481. He never did reclaim the Swedish crown, but at least he left an heir to the throne, John who had been recognized as the future king by all three Scandinavian kingdoms, Denmark, Norway and Sweden. This time, we'll see how John went on dreaming and scheming to capture the Swedish crown. Episode 66, Hopes and Schemes. Everyone who expected complications when John was to succeed his father expected those complications to come from Sweden. But as the Danes and the Swedes sat down to talk about the conditions for a Swedish recognition of John as King of Sweden, all of a sudden, to everyone's shock, the Norwegians piped up. The Norwegian council announced that they weren't going to recognize John unless he agreed to a bunch of demands to devolve power to Norway. They had collected grievances for a while now, and they felt the succession of a new king would be an excellent time to address them. Beyond the fact that the Danish king had ridden roughshod over Norway and its nobility for years, handing out commands and governorships to Danes and other non-Norwegians, they were also upset that Christian had handed over the Shetland and Orkney Islands to Scotland to pay for his daughter's marriage to the Scottish king. They also demanded that a Norwegian be put in charge of Iceland, which was an old Norwegian colony, and that only Norwegian merchants be allowed to trade with Iceland. The Norwegians turned to the Swedes for support, and in 1482, at a meeting in Oslo, the two countries promised each other support against John if needed. When the Norwegians also initiated a siege of Bohus Castle, a Norwegian castle with a Danish commander, the message reached Copenhagen loud and clear. 
the castle was handed over to a Norwegian and in exchange the Norwegians promised to show up at a pan-Scandinavian election for a new king held in Halmstad at New Year's 1483. At that meeting, the Danes and the Norwegians did elect John King. The Swedes postponed their election to the summer because the steward of the realm, Stensture, hadn't been able to join the meeting in Halmstad. He claimed to be sick. It was well known that Stensture had an eye condition, so maybe he really was sick. Or he may have been playing for time. Still, the peace between Denmark and Sweden remained, even though Sweden's place within the Kalmar Union was unclear. Officially, still in, but de facto with at least one foot out the door. Even though John had to sign documents, formally handing considerable powers over to the high nobility when he was crowned king of Denmark and Norway in 1483, he consistently worked to undermine these nobles by appointing men of lower birth to key positions in his administration, as commanders of castles and as bishops. In one case, the son of a shoemaker was made bishop in Odense, and a man was made archbishop despite having been born in a poor family in Halland. The fact that he was competent and loyal outweighed his low birth. This policy annoyed the high nobility, but they couldn't do much to stop it. In addition, King John implemented a policy of divide and conquer by favoring a few influential noble families. That way, he made sure the nobility wouldn't unite against him. Meanwhile, Sweden was still beyond King John's grasp. In Stockholm, it was the steward of the realm, Stensture, who was in charge. He was riding high at the moment, but staying on top was a tricky business, and his situation was far from stable. As I mentioned last time, Stensture was aware of the danger of peasant rebellions, not least since a full-blown uprising would give King John an excellent opportunity to intervene and to topple him. So the steward did what he could to keep the peasants calm, using both the carrot and the stick. The carrot was a relatively careful taxation policy, trying not to raise taxes too much and not to introduce new taxes and fees. The stick was just a stick, or a sharp sword. Whenever there was unrest somewhere, Stensture was quick to dispatch the force to put it down, ruthlessly and effectively, before it had a chance to grow into something too noteworthy. At the same time, Stensture also invested considerable time and effort in disseminating his political message to the peasants. And as we saw last time, this propaganda effort paid off when the peasants and the burghers rejected a deal that the nobles had struck with Christian about taking him back as king. Stensture also did what he could to balance the 30 or so families in the Swedish high nobility, keeping them in check and reasonably happy. That was a difficult task, but still a crucial one, since he could only hope to stay in power as long as the nobility thought he was a better alternative than King John. By the way, you may be wondering how to define high nobility. At this time, before formal titles having been introduced with a more detailed hierarchy, things were a little fuzzy. But you could reasonably say that to be considered a member of the high nobility, you should belong to a family with members in the council of the realm for at least two generations, and whose daughters marry primarily members of the council, or at least knights. Other criteria are that they are given commands over castles and governorships, and that they build stone castles on their private lands. That last thing had been forbidden by Margaret, as you may recall, but at this point, in the late 15th century, People were doing it again if they could afford it. Even though Stensture was a skillful politician, 
handling the high nobility proved to be a bit of a challenge for him. One of the reasons for the tension between the steward and the nobility was the aggressive way Stin Studer purchased land from other nobles. He bought some 300 farms, growing his own real estate portfolio at other noblemen's expense. And, as I mentioned last time, he didn't shy away from exploiting his high office to enforce his will. The sellers and other noblemen didn't appreciate it. Stin Studer was becoming too powerful and too rich. Beyond his domestic headaches, a third problem for the steward was that King John was still after the Swedish crown, and he could be just as ruthless as Stin Studer in order to achieve his goals. The king didn't even shy away from colluding with Sweden's enemies if he thought that weakening Sweden would make it easier to bring the country back into the fold. The eastern border of the Kalmar Union had never really been peaceful or stable, but things had been heating up lately. In 1471, the Novgorod Republic, once known as Holmgård to the Vikings, became a client state of Moscow, and soon sporadic fighting flared up along the border. This led to the commander of Viborg in eastern Finland to decide it was time to beef up the defences, especially against the ever more important artillery, a weapon the Muscovites had used very successfully against Novgorod. The result was a massive castle set to guard the eastern borders of the realm. It was also meant to guard the Catholic Christian world from what they saw as the heretical Russian Orthodox threat, signaled by the name given to the new keep. St. Olaf's Tower. St. Olaf, as you may remember from episode 27, The Eternal King of Norway, was the Norwegian king who had fought against the heathens in order to spread Christianity in Norway. In 1478, the Muscovite prince, Ivan III, conquered the Novgorod Republic outright, and few people thought he'd stop there. In case anyone had missed Ivan's ambitions, he started to style himself emperor, or czar in Russian, claiming that Moscow was now the Third Rome after the 1453 fall of Constantinople, the traditional centre of Orthodox Christianity. Moscow's next victim might be the Teutonic Order. The order had been weakened by wars lately, and the order had lost a significant amount of territory. To make matters worse, there were internal tensions within the order, both between powerful knights and between the knights and the church, and between the knights and the burghers in the cities under Teutonic control. Moscow wasn't the only vulture circling the weakened order, though. The Swedes also had their eyes on the, this particular prize, and already in 1478, the Swedes had launched a campaign to take control over Riga, invited to do so by the local archbishop. That campaign had been an unmitigated fiasco, but in 1486 they were at it again. This time, the Swedes had more luck, and the Archbishop of Riga recognized Sweden as the defender of his diocese. This meant that the Swedes also felt that they had legitimate interests in the Baltic region. So when, in 1492, the Muscovites stepped up their military presence there by building the castle of Ivangorod on the eastern bank of the Narva River, a stone's throw away from the border, both the Teutonic Knights and the Swedes saw this as a threat. In Copenhagen, King John also observed the growing strength of the Russians, but unlike the Swedes, he didn't see it as a threat, but as an opportunity. An opportunity to weaken the Swedes and perhaps even to force them to yield to him. King John reached out to Tsar Ivan, and they reached an agreement. To begin with, Danish merchants were allowed to establish a trading post in Novgorod in 1493. The following year, 
Tsar Ivan arrested the remaining German merchants in the city and closed down the Hansa Kontur that had been active in Novgorod for some 300 years. This was a part of his taking control over trade in his own realm, as well as his deepening relations with Denmark and King John. But those deepening relations weren't limited to trade. Danish and Russian delegates held secret diplomatic talks, where John, seeing himself as the rightful king of Sweden, accepted that the Russians push their border with Finland further westward by force. This was controversial, of course, and King John made sure to keep the agreement top secret. The Russian attack against Finland came in the fall of 1495. They brought with them heavy artillery and a large army, kitted out to put Viborg Castle under siege. The Swedes reacted by conscripting every fifth man in Finland and sending all the noblemen in Finland who were able to sit on a horse to the eastern border. At the same time, a contingent of knights from the Teutonic Order arrived to participate in the defense, thanks to a deal negotiated by Stensture. In Stockholm, meanwhile, the steward was getting ready to personally cross the Baltic Sea to participate in the defense of Finland. Being the skilled propagandist that he was, Stensture framed the campaign as a crusade, a repeat of St. Eric's war against the heathens in the east. It didn't hurt that King John was on good terms with the heretic Russian enemy. As a part of the elaborate propaganda effort, St. Eric's banner was brought from Uppsala Cathedral to Stockholm in a solemn procession. It was placed at the altar of St. George in the Stockholm church that would later become Stockholm Cathedral, and there the steward and some other dignitaries knelt in prayer before setting out to war. The send-off may have been splendid, but it had taken a long time to organize, so by the time the steward and his force finally left Stockholm, it was already late in the year, and the Baltic Sea was already suffering from winter storms, and even ice starting to cover parts of it. On November 30th, the steward had to disembark in the Åland or Avenanma archipelago between Sweden and Finland, and by Christmas he hadn't gotten further than Turku in the westernmost part of Finland. It was there that dramatic news reached him from Viborg. On the very day the steward had been forced to land on an island in the Åland archipelago, the Russians had attacked the castle, bombarding it with artillery fire. The cannon caused great damage to the walls and several towers, and at dawn the storming of the castle had begun. Fierce fighting ensued, with the defenders pouring hot tar over the attackers who were scaling the walls. Just as one of the largest towers in the wall was about to fall to the Russians, an enormous explosion ripped through the tower. The whole structure was blown to smithereens, leaving an enormous crater and a cloud of dust. This scared the attackers so much that they lost their will to continue fighting. Instead, they withdrew and the Swedes managed to keep control over the heavily damaged Vibor castle. The explosion was probably caused by the commander having ordered his men to set fire to large quantities of gunpowder stored in the tower. But when the news of the explosive defense of Vibor Castle reached Denmark, some people drew the conclusion that this, too, was an indication that the Swedes had the devil on their side, just like at the Battle of Brunkeberg that we talked about last time. But just because Viborg hadn't fallen, that didn't mean that the war was over. That winter and the following summer, 
Russian raiding parties swarmed all over Finland, from Tornio in the north to Satakunta in the south, burning and pillaging more or less at will. The forces Steinstura sent against them consisted mostly of peasant soldiers, and they were too slow to be effective against the mounted Russians. Steinstura soon lost interest in the defense of Finland and returned to Stockholm to deal with the political fallout of the Russian attack. The guy who was left in charge of the Swedish forces realized he could march up and down Finland chasing the Russians until the cows came home without reaching any result at all. So instead, he decided to take the war to their own backyard. In the late summer of 1496, he shipped his army across the Gulf of Finland and attacked the newly constructed Ivangorod castle, where the first Tsar was busy building the first Russian fleet. The city fell on August 27th, and after the Swedes had plundered everything of value and destroyed everything else, they returned across the Gulf of Finland. In the meantime, the tension between Stensture and the Swedish high nobility was getting worse. Beyond his unpopular business practices, the council was now also criticizing his efforts to defend Finland. To avoid the domestic drama and to project strength and initiative, the steward returned to Finland. Unfortunately, he soon managed to get into a conflict with the military commander in the east, since Steinstude refused to reimburse the commander for his expenses during the war. When he realized he wasn't going to be paid for his efforts, the commander resigned and returned to Sweden, together with a large part of his armed forces, leaving the eastern border dangerously exposed. Luckily for Stensture, the Russians were ready to negotiate at this point, and the two sides agreed to a six-year-long ceasefire. During that time, the two sides were supposed to decide where the Swedish-Russian border should be drawn once and for all. When those negotiations started, the skilled propagandist Stensture brought a falsified version of the treaty from 1323, stating that basically all the land currently held by the Swedes should be part of Finland. Ivan's delegation didn't buy it though, but that didn't stop the Swedes from bringing that fake treaty to every negotiation with the Russians for the next century or so. The war with Moscow had weakened Stensture's position, and, from King John's perspective, that had been the whole point to begin with. Against the backdrop of the fighting in the east, the king pressured the Swedes to sit down and finalize a deal with him that would let him ascend the Swedish throne, as they had promised already back in 1483. At the same time, John raised mercenary troops in Germany, likely in preparation for an attack on Sweden if the Swedes persisted in their refusal to recognize him as king. As if it wasn't enough for Stensture to deal with Tsar Ivan and King John, the tension between him and the Swedish high nobility was still rising because of his handling or mishandling of the war with the Russians. In the late winter of 1497, the council, led by the archbishop, basically tried to oust Stensture. They met in Stockholm, and by now even the burghers of the city were hostile to the steward. So when he went to meet the council for negotiations outside the safety of the castle walls, he had to first get a promise of safe conduct from the mayor of Stockholm. Not a good position to be in. Still, Stensture managed to weasel out of the council's demand that he resign immediately. Instead, there would be a meeting of the estates in the summer, where the issue would be decided. But tables turned soon thereafter. News of the six-year treaty with the Russians arrived more or less at the same time as a declaration of war from King John, who no doubt was unhappy with the lack of results from his scheming with the Russians. 
Sten Sture could use these events in his propaganda to get the peasants in northern and central Sweden to rally to his cause against the nobility and the city of Stockholm. In June, the steward attacked the archbishop thanks to troops he could now free up from the Finnish front. The archbishop responded with an excommunication, which in turn led to more widespread attacks on church property around the country. As Sweden was quickly descending into civil war, King John saw that the time was ripe for an attack. The Hansa had reinstated its blockade on trade with Sweden since John had let pirates from Gotland harass their shipping until they agreed to do so. In July, John and an army of Danish and German troops crossed the border into Sweden from Blekinge. The German mercenaries had been chosen specifically from among those who had quenched peasant uprisings in Germany, so they were accustomed to fighting irregular troops. Hopefully, there would be no repeats of knights being picked off one after the other along a narrow forest road. John also commanded a strong fleet, which the Swedes lacked. John's army marched on Kalmar, some 55 kilometers north of the border. At the same time, troops from Norway crossed the border and took the important castle Elvsborg on the west coast. Several other important castles, such as Borgholm and Örebro, joined the king's cause and opened their gates to the Danes. So did Kalmar, and when King John arrived there, he sent troops with his new fleet to Stockholm to aid the archbishop in his fight against the steward. Even though the situation looked bleak, Stensture kept on fighting. He sat holed up at Stockholm Castle, surrounded by the hostile city that supported the council. The Danish troops surrounded the city and established their headquarters at the convent dedicated to St. Clara, where some of the fiercest fighting had taken place during the battle at Brunkeberg that had ended in John's father, Christian, having to abandon any plans on taking Sweden by force. Stensture sent out demands to the peasants all over Sweden to attack castles held by men loyal to King John. But the only ones who responded were the people of Dalarna, and they sent a peasant force down towards Stockholm at the end of the summer. King John sent his peasant-killing German mercenaries to deal with them, and on September 28th the peasant force was defeated and driven back north. The mercenaries returned to Stockholm in triumph and placed the captured banners of the peasants from Dalarna on the Brunkeberg Ridge. When Stensture and his men, watching from their isolation inside the castle, saw the banners, they mistook it to mean that the peasant force had been victorious and that the men from Dalarna were now waiting on the ridge. So the steward's troops sallied forth from the castle, hoping to link up with the peasants on the ridge. Imagine their surprise and horror when they realized their mistake. Stensture himself barely made it back to safety behind the castle walls thanks to his horse swimming across the lake. Many of his soldiers hadn't been so lucky and several of them lay dead on the field. Now Stensture finally conceded that he had to make a deal with King John and soon before he lost all his bargaining power. As luck would have it, John was equally interested in a quick deal because the German mercenaries were costing him a fortune. So already on October 6th, a deal was struck. John would be recognized as King of Sweden, bound by earlier agreements of power sharing. There would be a general amnesty for the steward and his followers, and Stensture were to be given large tracts of land. November 25th, the formal election took place, but it happened in Stockholm, not at the Stones of Mura outside Uppsala, as tradition demanded. And the coronation the following day 
also took place in Stockholm, not in Uppsala. Perhaps John wanted to get it over with quickly and feared that an outing to Uppsala might give the Swedes time to change their minds again. Anyway, since the ceremony took place in Stockholm, King John had to walk past the monument of St. George killing the dragon, celebrating the triumph over his father Christian at Brunkeberg a quarter of a century before. The Swedish Council of the Realm had hoped for King John to hand power and lands back to them and their families after the defeat of Stensture. But John was smarter than that. He not only made sure Stensture got to keep a lot of land, he also made him one of the most important men on the council, and the man who should rule in the king's name when he wasn't in Sweden. This way, he hoped to keep the Swedish council from uniting against him, and instead being busy fighting each other. One of the things King John managed to get the divided council to agree to even though it was in violation of the promises he'd made before his election, was to recognize his son, Christian, as his heir, which they did in May 1499. But just as John had finally reached his and his father's goal of once again re-establishing the Kalmar Union, and he had secured the succession for his son, Lady Luck laughed in his face. John hadn't just inherited the title King of Denmark, Norway and Sweden from his father. He was now also the Duke of Schleswig-Holstein. That was alright for most people, except those living in the small, waterlogged region of Dietmarschen on the North Sea coast. The Holy Roman Emperor had decided that Dietmarschen belonged to Holstein, but the locals insisted on being independent. King John wasn't going to have any of that though, so when he was done with the Swedes, he turned his attention to these independently-minded peasants. In January 1500, he brought a vast army to Holstein, consisting of both mounted noble knights and regular infantry soldiers. In addition, he rehired a thousand or so of the German mercenaries he'd brought with him to Sweden to take care of Stensture and his peasants. They reached the main town of the region of uh, Dietmarschen, a town called Meldorf, without encountering any resistance, if you don't count the howling wind and the cold, miserable winter rain. The king was frustrated since the peasant soldiers refused to meet him and his vast army in open battle, but he continued north in his pursuit of them. As the army commanded by King John moved north, they had to do so on only one road, because the peasants had flooded the surrounding fields, turning them into untraversable marshland. Has this started to sound familiar to you yet? Oh. Anyway, on February 15th, the army reached a village called Hemmingstedt, and there they found that the one road they all had to travel on was blocked. The knights tried to attack the barricade, but it was hard for them to do so, since they were all strung out along the narrow road. Soon, surprise, peasants who had been hiding along the sides of the road started to shoot at them and the knights became sitting ducks. Those who tried to venture off-road either got stuck in the mud or drowned, weighed down by their heavy armor. Many of those who stayed on the road were either killed by the arrows from the peasants or trampled to death by their comrades who tried either to attack the barricade or retreat out of this death trap. Even the king and his brother Frederick were almost killed, but they managed to escape the carnage. When the news of the defeat in Dietmarschen reached Stockholm, the bickering noblemen in the Council of the Realm realized that this was their chance. If they could just put their differences aside for a while, they could cut the king down to size, and that would benefit them all. 
King John returned to Sweden in 1501, and when he did so, he was met by a united front. Even Sten Sture and the Archbishop seemed to be old buddies. The council let their pinned-up frustration pour out over the king. They demanded he live up to his end of the deal he'd agreed to when he was elected. The council accused him of violating the agreement by robbing them of powers that were theirs by right. It didn't help that a Russian delegation also arrived in Stockholm at the same time to discuss the ceasefire treaty they felt the Swedes had violated. When they did, the secret 1493 agreement between King John and Tsar Ivan was revealed to the Swedish council. They were livid and felt betrayed by their own king. But maybe, just maybe, the Swedish nobles were also a bit happy to learn about the secret agreement. This gave them the moral standing to rebel against the king, a king who'd managed to outsmart them all, and who'd proven to be a much more skillful politician and power player than they were. Next time, we'll see if King John was skillful enough to handle this new crisis as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.